Um, just a few more uh, remarks on along the same lines we've been following for the last few days and a bit more on bringing this practice home. In a weekend retreat with such a diverse group, it's really difficult to go into all the subtle details and distinctions uh, that are necessary to make and which take time and which take um, which require immersion in the practice. So if we had a week or more um, we could turn make some interesting turns. However, the basic practice has been presented uh, it's something that can take you quite a ways. In terms of just helping the mind to settle down, to become more calm and more steady. So far, uh, the instructions have been to be aware of the breath. Wherever you have found the breath to be strongest for you, most interesting for you. But now let me give you a few uh, other techniques that are designed to help you do this in case when you leave here you find that one or another of these techniques are helpful or necessary. Uh, If you're happy just following the breath the way it is, then please don't look for trouble. Just do that. Eventually, uh, it becomes less and less technique and just simply paying attention. Finally, there, there are no techniques really. It's just attention. One very simple uh, aid to remaining concentrated on the breath is simply the words in and out. That is, as the breath comes in, just uh, a bare inner whisper, in, and as the breath goes out, out. Perhaps five or 10% of your energy is on that mental note that accompanies the breath. So sometimes that can help anchor your attention. If you're at the abdomen, you might want to say rising, falling, or, or also in and out. So if you feel, if you find that you need something to help you, um, that your mind has been quite a bit scattered, then try this and see if it, see if it's good for you. Another very uh, ancient technique is one of simply counting. And there are quite a few variations on this. One that's adequate for most people is on the out-breath. Let's say you're breathing in and then you breathe out, one. You're breathing in, you're breathing out, two. You're breathing in, you're breathing out, three. So in matching the counting with the breath, of course you would know if you miss a breath because you lose a number. Let's say it gets to breathing in, breathing out, four. Breathing in, breathing out, and then you're off somewhere. Well, you never got to five. So it's an external reminder that the thread has been broken, that you're not paying attention to the breath. At which case, at which point, it's a bit gamey, but at which point you go back to one. It's like an early video game or something. <laughs> you go back to one and you start all over. Um, and 10 is a good number. So you, let's say you get to 10 and then you start over. Um, some of my remarks are meant more for people, which may be many of you, who 
when you leave here are not near any centers or teachers or anything of that sort. And just to give you a few more um, tools, uh, if you get to do about 10 sets of 10, and don't make this into uh, some kind of highly competitive you know, match with yourself, but it's roughly speaking, for many people that's enough. You can drop it and just come back to the breath without the counting. That is, you go from 1 to 10 uninterruptedly 10 times. If you're finding that you're having a very hard time, that it seems to break down at about 5, then I think we can kind of fix it, you know, rig, rig this a little bit, so to make it 1 to 5, so that way you can't lose. Or as you go from one to five, I don't know how many times. There is no absolute about it. It's just a device to help steady the mind. It gives, again, it gives the mind, which loves to be preoccupied, something to chew on, numbers. A third, uh, very powerful one, but uh, I don't know of how much value it is for Westerners. Uh, in Asia, it's very useful, and some... Uh, Westerners benefit from it tremendously, is um, the phrase Budo. There are other phrases, but for the moment, let's just limit it to that, which is, simply means the one who knows. That is, the, this is the, the Buddha is one who has ultimate knowing. And the one who knows starts with us. We already know, but often what we know is incorrect. And as we refine this practice, the, the knowing becomes clearer and clearer and more reliable. And finally, a Buddha is one who knows. And that, that's what we're becoming. And so the phrase, Budo, you can key it to the breath. For example, on the in-breath, Bu, and on the out-breath, Do. Budo, Budo. Now that has an added benefit if you have uh, a devotional appreciation for Buddhism. There are many people who have that and still don't, are not attracted to this. so don't feel you should have this. But if you're drawn to it, and let's say you um, don't have any problems about Buddhism or, or devotion or images of the Buddha, there's no ambivalence. You might even say you have a love for uh, the Buddha and the Dharma teachings. Then in saying that, there's an added richness to it. And for some people, that uh, can really steady the mind a lot because it's... Um, when you say Budo, especially as you hear it in the mind uh, said in a proper way, and you're listening to yourself say it as you say it, it's all silent. I'm not saying this aloud. Say so you hear it, let's say the breath goes in, Budo, Budo. When you really hear it, and if it has meaning to you as, as the one who knows, or you could just say Buddha, 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 uh, it can have a captivating effect on the mind, really quietening it down, soothing the mind. Because the, if, the, if it's a certain kind of mind, it likes to hear that word because it's a very beautiful word to that mind. But you can't fake that. I mean, if you're drawn to it, good. If you're not, it's all right. It's no problem. Um, if your mind is very, very busy, what you can do is even on the in-breath, Budo, and on the out-breath, Budo, on the in-breath, Budo, on the out-breath, Budo. So in a sense, you're plugging up holes where thought might come in and take over. Budo can also be used in the walking meditation. You can use it during the day um, to, from time to time to hear it, to steady yourself. But for right now, it's enough. So these are three other ways, all of which are designed to help us do what we've been doing. 
Now, with the counting, with Budo, with in-out, at a certain point when the samadhi gets strong, you quite naturally will not want to use these devices. It's not something you'll decide. You just, it'll fall away and be experienced as a burden, as extra. It will just be the doing of it. When you get home, what would be helpful is to establish a regular sitting practice where um, I would suggest, certainly for all the new people and maybe for most people, um, this is what a lot of us do at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. We're finding it to be very helpful for people. And that is to do this samadhi practice, just as you've been doing it, and allowing the insight part to come up quite naturally. That is when uh, there are obstructions when something becomes problematic and time and time again takes your attention away from the breath, then let go of the breath and investigate, examine. Um, Let me go into that a bit more. If you're doing primarily a samadhi practice, which Uh, would not be a bad usage of your time. Then when you do your formal sitting, you're essentially doing what you've learned here, following the breath in one form or another, and only investigating if something became a problem. Then you're looking at it, perhaps seeing it from the point of view of impermanence. There are many ways to investigate. I'll go into some uh, in a moment. The other way in in which wisdom can be developed is during the day. There's, let's say, you sit for an hour or two a day. I'm just, you know, some of you perhaps can sit more, some less. There's a lot of hours left. And wisdom can be developed anywhere. And one good way is by paying attention throughout the day. And here is another very important support uh, for samadhi practice. We've been suggesting it here, and I'll just, I'm just going to refresh your memory. If you could uh, be wholehearted in everything that you do during the day, that is, let's say, when you wash the dishes, to just wash the dishes. And what does that mean? Uh, usually we don't just wash the dishes. While we're washing the dishes, our mind is planning something that we're going to do after the dishes or remembering something that happened during the day. And Despite that, miraculously, we seem to get the dishes done. They may even be spotless. But we're concerned about our mind. So if the dishes are spotless and our mind's a mess, which is often the way it is, uh, what have we accomplished? Got a nice clean dish rack. (laughs) And a goofy mind. So in a sense, this is a bargain because we can both get the dishes clean and our mind clean at the same time. We'll stoop to anything to motivate you to practice. (laughs) This wholeheartedness, uh, by trying to learn, and it's not easy to learn, those of you who have attempted to do it know that during the day it's very easy to be pulled off what you're doing or to do it mechanically. Uh, But more and more, if you can remind yourself periodically during the day or pause before you're starting an activity and form the intention to do it wholeheartedly. 
like the dishes, like making your bed, or whatever it is. Um, it's not simply a concentration exercise. And actually, samadhi has, uh, although it, often when it's used, what it's emphasizing is one-pointedness of mind. It's more than just one-pointedness, as you probably have gathered. It has calmness in it. It's a very rich um, dimension that's being tapped when the mind is steady. But another way to put it is that you're more fully alive. That is, when you're wholehearted in what you're doing, you feel more fully alive. And that's why people will sometimes report feeling great doing the most, in quotes, trivial things. Just chopping vegetables or riding their bicycle or whatever it is. It's not that the magic is in the bicycle or in the vegetables. It's in that you're alert. So when we're alert, we're more alive. And that's another way of putting the practice is really to become more and more alive. A Buddha is someone who's fully alive. Okay, now sometimes when you're doing this, and here's where wisdom comes in, you're attempting to be wholehearted in what you do, but you get blocked. I want to make sure you understand what wholeheartedness is. And I'm using very simple examples because our day is made up of a lot of these. Let's say you're having a glass of water because we do that a fair amount or something like it. And if while you're drinking the glass of water, you're longing for champagne or you're even thinking of champagne, you've both killed water and you've killed champagne or you've killed life in that moment because you're not fully drinking the water and you don't really have champagne. So you know that you're neither here nor there. And check and see if there isn't a fair amount of that in life. Many activities uh, are not done in a wholehearted way because they're beneath us. Cleaning the toilet bowl, well, you know, let's just get it over with. But there's a lot of wisdom in toilet bowls if you can really do it and see your aversion to it and see how trapped you are, how you can't go into that bowl or the, the games you have to play in order to do that. Well, then you learn something about yourself. So there's really wisdom is abundant. It's, on, it's, it's growing on trees, so to speak, all over the place, just waiting to be uh, taken by us. So often uh, we're not alert because the activities that we're doing are considered either trivial or negative, mundane, routine. Or we're not alert because we define certain people as not being worthy of full respect or full attention. Special people, important people, people who control uh, money or gratification, parents, whatever, they get full respect, at least sometimes. But then there are a lot of people who just pass in and out of our lives where perhaps there's nothing in it for us. And they become non-persons all too easily, objects. And so during those moments, we're dead, really. We're not fully alive and we're not right there. So uh, you can see, to just do things, to be wholehearted is not a small thing. And now the wisdom part can come in in the following way. you can begin to see that there's a systematic ways in which we're inattentive. Certain realms of uh, our life uh, are realms where we're, we seem to be highly unmotivated to pay attention. Often there's anxiety attached to those realms. If you see there's some realm in life where you're very inattentive, there's a good chance that it has to do with anxiety and perhaps early experience in life. Psychiatry has documented that beautifully. 
And so sometimes when we see that, these are attachments to experiences that no longer exist but which rule our present life. Sometimes those are clues uh, of areas to take on as training, to take it on as a practice, to give special attention there because we know we're vulnerable there. We're more likely to be inattentive. And we each have different ones, and you probably know yours. Um, one general way in which uh, Vipassana can be practiced, or that is to say, gaining insight into things and learning the art of letting go, is any time during the day, if you find yourself suffering or unhappy, see if there isn't some attachment in that moment, something that you're holding on to. And often, if there is, because this teaching suggests that there is, I mean, but it, don't take it as a belief, test it. I'll give you an example. This came from a person, it's one of my favorite examples. Some of you are probably tired of hearing it, but a person goes into the supermarket and reaches for their favorite brand of yogurt, and it isn't there. You know, there are other brands, but not that one brand. And then a slight drop in consciousness, a slight depression. Okay, it's not much, and, you know, we can just slow right over that. In and of itself, it's nothing. But our day is made up of lots of things like that. Well, now this person picked up on it, felt that happen, felt the attachment to a particular brand of yogurt, and in the seeing, there was a release, and letting go of that one. Just saying, look what I'm doing, how I'm making myself suffer, just because the particular brand of yogurt that I wanted isn't here. Now, you can't make the mind not do that. The mind will get attached to what it wants to get attached to. But you can see it. You can see it and extract some wisdom from that. And there are many small forms of bondage all day long, little expectations that we have that are thwarted, and small releases as you start to to see these, these events, so that routine activities and any events where you find yourself caught holding on to something or pushing something away are wonderful places to inquire and to examine with your awareness. Now, the degree to which your samadhi is strong, the degree to which your mind is calm and steady, is the degree to which you're able to do this. You're able to investigate and remain steady in the face of the field of investigation, the challenge that's come up. A yogurt might not require much steadiness. Maybe for some people it would. But there are many things that come up during the day when we do get caught. And if there is no samadhi, or not no, we all have samadhi already, but if it's very weak, then it'll be overrun by that mood and we'll get lost in it. And some things, as you know, are very, very powerful. So if you can uh, begin to take the practice into daily life with no situation... Uh, being worthless or beyond the need for attention. In short, to bring the Dharma into daily life, to spiritualize ordinary living, which is really just crying out to be done. I mean, if it's always contained in special places, the only place we can be doing our practice is IMS and caves and Buddhist temples and churches, uh, that's a real limitation. And so if you start to uh, absorb this frame of reference, this attitude, first of all, it's quite liberating in that you can practice wherever you are. Every place is a perfect place to practice. Because any place that we can make a fool of, out of ourselves is also a place where we can wise up. And, there, 
any place will do, really, wherever you are. So, uh, in that sense, even though in your formal sitting, let's say you're devoting a lot of time and energy to studying the mind on the breath, by working with difficult situations that come up in the sitting and practicing the the pasana then, and by also practicing uh, developing wisdom during the day, there's ample opportunity to develop both samadhi and vipassana. For those of you who feel shortchanged, and I know that many of you just want to get on with the vipassana because that's really where it's at. But that's a distortion. That's not really what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught... Uh, the use of samadhi, samadhi always associated with wisdom. And both of them, uh, the mind yoked to both of them. Both of them pulling together, eventually fusing. Now here's another way in which they interrelate. This may not be evident to you until your practice starts to get deeper. The samadhi practice, that is. For some of you, you're already at that point and you can see if it's true or maybe you already know it's true. Let's say um, I'll put it positively. The time comes (coughs) when it is possible pretty much all the time or very often, let's say, that you can drop into a peaceful state at will if you practice it. Practice this. The time comes where you can attune yourself to the breath and come to some level of peace and sometimes very deeply. At that point, what, what is very useful is to live in that space. In a sense, nourish the mind, nourish the heart in that space of peace and of joy and the many fine qualities that uh, enable the mind to rest and to refresh itself. And then at a certain point, withdraw from that state of calm and investigate. And that's typically how these work together, especially as both get stronger. And so let's say uh, you're in samadhi for a while and you don't want to stay there forever. I mean, you don't stay there forever. And in this practice, it wouldn't be called for. So then you feel refreshed and you come out and then you investigate. Let's say one kind of investigation and um, I'll give you two that I do in my own practice, have done from time to time and found helpful. One is to now and then set aside uh, a period of extensive sitting or even just one sitting. And during that sitting, just uh, look for impermanence wherever it is, whether it's the breath or mood or bodily sensation, or sound, whatever comes into my field of attention, to see that it arises and passes away. So that the focus is more on the process of impermanence. And now we're into vipassana, because we're seeing uh, vipassana, one meaning of it is insight into, and one of the insights it's into is impermanence, seeing that everything that arises passes away. Well, you can do that for quite a while, and it's invaluable and very freeing, invariably, inevitably, you come to a, uh, we've had enough. You just don't want to investigate anymore. Okay, I've seen impermanence enough. Or you get tired because it's a somewhat more active mode. At which point you drop into samadhi and you allow the mind to heal itself, to refresh itself. It's like having a good night's rest. 
but it's not to live there. Many people are worried about yogis getting so infatuated with samadhi because of how good it can feel, how high and sometimes psychic powers that come from it. Uh, that they're worried about people getting caught there, and it definitely happens. Uh, and that's, but it's not by design. Also, in my experience, that isn't something that most Westerners have to worry about yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, it becomes a very nice uh, and artful way of alternating between moments when the correct practice is to go into stillness and to experience the happiness and the joy of stillness. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I feel we're so worried about this attachment to stillness that we are afraid of it. We're afraid to have some joy of that kind. It isn't the ultimate. It's not enlightenment. But it's very, very helpful. So in those moments, there's a a happy kind of living that's going on. And then coming out and investigating. Another kind of investigation that I found particularly fruitful is being alert to the presence of I and mine anywhere. And that's something that uh, I like to do, not just sitting, but just whenever I see uh, the I appropriate something, like I just opened the door for that person, aren't I wonderful? And you can feel that. It comes up and when it's accompanied by mindfulness, that's another form of insight. You're investigating the nature of selfing, of how we make selves, a seemingly solid self. We create that illusion in the moment. And if you can see it, it's harmless. You don't get bitten. If you don't, get, if you don't see it, then the ego gets stronger and you do get bitten inevitably. And the time comes where you're tired of doing that. And so you go back into samadhi. And there are just many ways in which those of you who have been practicing Vipassana for a while know that you can investigate death. You can investigate the nature of your body. You can investigate unsatisfactoriness or feelings. Just see the nature of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You can bring them together. You can see that feelings, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, are impermanent and lack self. I can't give a crash course on insight for those of you who are here for the first time, but there's a lot of very interesting themes that can be investigated. They're not done intellectually, at least what I'm describing now. They're done through direct observation of our own mind and our own body. Another way in which samadhi is helpful, let me, let me put it generally. Samadhi is helpful, in other words, the ability for the mind to be so concentrated and steady that it can place itself on whatever object it wants to and stay there as long as it wants to, is obviously of enormous help for anything in life. No matter what project you have in mind, this will be helpful. You want to be a good bank robber? You can be better if you develop samadhi. But in the Buddhist system, that would not be right samadhi because it's an unwholesome object. So all the fun is again taken away. Or whatever else it is you want to do. You want to make a lot of money? This can help you because you can be much more equanimous and concentrated, less reactive. Really pay attention and perhaps have a, a chance of your decisions being uh, more accurate, more effective. Other ways in which the, the, the samadhi is helpful in terms of the direct investigation, and it's, this is hard to convey to those of you who are really new to the practice, but 
as the samadhi gets stronger, and let's say as you direct it to any of these themes or aspects of the mind and body, uh, the best way I can describe it is that, let's say you're examining some pain in the body. If there's strong samadhi, it's as if it saturates the object. It's like the, uh, there's a sinking deeply into the object and, and a, the sensitivity sinks into the object and as a result, there's a much more full experience of what the object is. So much so that relative to what we think of as being sensitivity, it's like cardboard. It's very dull. And so as samadhi gets deeper and deeper, we, the, you'll see your mind becomes, can become more pliable, more sensitive. And it's a matter of penetrating. And the wisdom comes out of that. The wisdom comes out of uh, this refined seeing. And so that's the way in which uh, the vipassana and samadhi fuse. Shamatha vipassana are the same. They really just come together and go deeply. And you learn from that which has gone deeply. It's not just being concentrated. You're also learning from that steadiness, from that steady seeing. Other uses of samadhi that have help in our practice. Let's say you uh, want to reflect on something. Traditionally, in education, in, uh, in Buddhist education, in the training of yogis, there are three kinds of learning. The first kind of learning is uh, let's say books and teachings, conceptual, intellectual, and that can be very helpful. Just ideas about reality, ideas about the human condition, ideas about how to free ourselves, all beautifully put sometimes in different teachings. And we're all familiar with that level. <clears throat> if you've gone to the university, you've done a lot of that. It's an attempt to understand ideas. The next step is to reflect on these ideas. That is to chew on them, to um, place them in juxtaposition with your life experience. Let's say, is what I've experienced so far, uh, does that confirm this idea? Or is there nothing in my life experience that seems to match this particular idea? Or just going deeply into the idea, experiencing it a little bit more deeply than just a dictionary definition. Now, if there's strong samadhi, if you mix the samadhi in with the, the idea or the situation, the outcome is much more fruitful. Let me give you an example. A year or two ago, um, well, there was a, a very nice kind of down-home restaurant in Harvard Square that I used to go to off and on for many, many years. And it was an old, what I would call an old-style restaurant. It was not in the least bit plastic. And, um, you know, it's a kind of a dying institution. And I went away for a while. When I came back, there was a clothing shop with just mannequins and very strange-looking mannequins. And there was no sign whatsoever that there ever had been that restaurant there. Now, I knew the restaurant was, uh, had, its days were numbered. But then I went away and then one day just walking, I wasn't prepared. I just walked in and it was a shock. And I just reflected on it. Now, this isn't a direct observation of impermanence, but just in that moment, uh, it seemed obvious that there was something useful to be reflected on. I said, I get it. One day you have this restaurant and then the next day it's gone. 
that really happened. And I could look at that space and see there's no restaurant there now, is there? No. And instead we have this. And for, let's say, new people who come into Cambridge, it's just normal. Oh, let's go to that dress shop. You know, they never even heard of the restaurant. And I just went into it as deeply as I could. And in some way, with as much steadiness as I had at my um, available to me, and there was a slight deepening of the understanding and the implications of impermanence. Some of it was poignant, some of it was just objective, understanding that this is exactly the way things are, and so I'd better get used to it. So do you see what I mean? Now, if you have strong samadhi, just that event uh, can yield a certain uh, a fruit in terms of understanding. If there isn't strong samadhi, you'll still learn something. Perhaps you know, oh, goodness, that restaurant's not there anymore, and it affects you. But this is taking it below the surface, so to speak. Okay, um, a question that I think some of you have asked. Oh, before I get to it, I want to make... Is is there someone here who wanted to know about psychic powers in samadhi? Right. Practicing the samadhi practice uh, sometimes seems to yield psychic powers. Sometimes um, the ability to read past lives or people's minds or many of the different skills that probably you all know that are called psychic. And this brings up an issue that uh, I think is worth talking about briefly. What, what is the place? Your question was, what's the place of that kind of experience? Yeah, place, yes. Okay. In and of itself, psychic uh, ability uh, is neutral. It could be beneficial to human beings and it can also be detrimental. I would say in my own experience, all too often it's detrimental. This is not the fault of psychic uh, ability. It's that all too often it becomes an ego trip because the person who has the psychic gift, however they've gotten it, either as a gift or through meditative training, uh, it's very easy to get appreciated. Now, so there's something more commercially viable about being able to read people's minds or give them a hit about the future or their past lives than, let's say, compassion or being fully enlightened. I think we'd all rather be psychic, wouldn't we? I mean, it's, it's just much more uh, saleable. It's certainly better at parties. Okay, but so that the person who has the ability gets very obvious uh, rewards for it. Again, it's not the, the fault of the psychic ability. So unless the person is mature enough to know what to do with that uh, skill, it's too respected. The, the psychic ability is a normal thing. It has been uh, the property of the human race for a long time. But in in our time period, which goes back quite a while. One way to look at it is we've put such a premium on the rational mind that psychic abilities have been obscured. And now they're starting to pop up. And so we really think there's something incredibly wonderful about them. But that's just because we're starved. You know, we've been, we've been counting too much on one plus one equals two. And it, sometimes it equals three. But, we, you know, we do, we're just not ready for it. And so it's, in a sense, overappreciated. If the person were balanced, psychic powers can be used for healing, they can be used to guide people, they can use, be used to guide yourself, and they can, of course, be an advantage. They can be used to uh, know which appropriate, which pre- meditation practices are appropriate for a person. 
supposedly the Buddha had full psychic powers and so knew which teaching and practice was useful for particular people. Finally on this, uh, at one point the Buddha was asked why he didn't use his psychic powers so much or why he didn't demonstrate them and why he didn't teach them. And he said something like, uh, if I taught you all psychic powers, I would be a little bit like a physician who taught you how to cure a minor ailment and then you would die from a major ailment. And what he meant was, you'd all be so involved and impressed with the psychic powers that you wouldn't want to do the hard work of sitting and walking. I mean, you know that it's not romantic, right? By now you must know that. Sit and walk and sit and walk. And so what he was saying was that people would be much more drawn to this it's much, it's much, much more uh, catchy to have psychic powers and it would be ha- even harder for him to get people to fold their legs and be quiet and face what's there, face the music. And so he felt that he would cure them of really minor ailments with the psychic powers, but the major illness is egotism. The major illness is this self-cherishing that we all have. And for that, unfortunately, or it's not unfortunate, but you need to work. There's a certain kind of work. And so he didn't want to do that. So now it's up to you. Make your own choice. If you have psychic abilities, be careful because the person you hurt may hurt most is yourself. If you're mature and don't, don't take it personally, and it was just, it's a gift. In fact, the practice saying don't take anything personally, really. But don't, don't take it personally. You may be able to use it in ways that are very, very helpful. Okay, a question that I think is on some people's minds. How do I, and then let's, uh, no, there's another point. I, uh, I'm going to try and fit this in. Okay. Another aid to samadhi would be the development of personal integrity, what in Buddhism is called shila, moral perfection. In our practice, we divide things in sort of three realms. One is shila or moral perfection or development of personal integrity and that has to do with lying and stealing, killing and so forth. Not that these are trivial. Don't let my and so forth imply that, you know, and so forth because you know the world is just right now it's an unbelievably corrupt period where it's rare to find someone who you can even trust to get the right time from. You know, it's always something going on. So there's the perfection of moral uh, moral development. There's samadhi, which we've been doing a lot of this weekend. And there's panya, or wisdom, or insight. And all three of those reinforce each other, need each other, and work together. So that if you have some loose ends in your character, and sometimes people who meditate have serious loose ends, like lots of lying, wrong speech, uh, gossiping, lots of problems there, or even stealing, in subtle ways, and you think that you're going to develop samadhi, it's fanciful. It won't happen. Your, your mind is not going to be able to calm down because when you don't live correctly, there's the generation of, you create, uh, there's an impact on others which then comes back to you. And there's also worrying. You know, if, if you're lying, do you realize how much, what good samadhi you have to have to be a good liar? It would all be used up in perpetuating the lie. You wouldn't have any energy left for right samadhi. So that if there are areas in your, in your character that need some work, 
This is not a minor thing. It's, in a sense, the ground out of which, uh, out of which uh, samadhi and, and wisdom flower and develop. So be honest about it and, and set to work with it. Finally, and then I think we'll call it uh, a retreat. Um, that's all it is. We're calling it a retreat. It's life just keeps going on. I mean, it's, there's no, nothing different. You're still going to walk and go to the bathroom and be aware or not be aware. Um, how do you? When when do you have enough samadhi? Has that been on anyone's mind? But you see, if you heard what I'm saying, it's not as if you ever have enough. It, uh, even the Buddha would go into deep levels of samadhi to just hang out there. And sometimes that's just, it's very good for the health of the body. And it's just a, a wonderful place to just be. But practically speaking, let me give you some guidelines. Um, to really do it right, it cannot be done in a large group like this. And I'm not going to try. I'm going to tell you what the issues are and give you a few rules of thumb which might help you, especially those of you who don't have access to centers very often or teachers. It's very much of an individual thing. And so uh, the best way to work it out is, is between yourself and somebody who has practiced this a bit and has some sense of how you're doing and what will be best for you at a particular time. Now, this practice, it, what we're aiming towards, that is, it will develop quite naturally towards if you keep doing it, is what is called, for those of you who are more technically minded, apanasamadhi which is a, a total absorption. That is, you go beyond the object. Right now we're getting concentrated on an object. But you go through the object, so to speak, and the mind, uh, the knowingness resides in itself. There's just pure knowing without any object. Now that's not enlightenment. It's just a very deep state of absorption and very, and very, very healing. And so then it's out of that we come and do uh, insight, as was just mentioned. But it's not that you have to wait until you perfect that to practice insight. And as you've already seen, there are many occasions to practice it. Using wisdom just to correct uh, mistakes in the practice, like uh, striving too hard or having expectations for good sittings and being disappointed. But a few rules of thumb or guidelines, rough guidelines. One is... Um, take a look at some Buddhist book about the hindrances, the five hindrances. And these have to do with, uh, some of them have to do with restlessness in the mind or dullness in the mind or uh, doubt or uh, anger or ill will and a kind of neediness in the mind, a wanting, the mind feels wanting something. But these are all, you can say they're expressions of what we've been talking about, the kilesas. And they keep us from being one-pointed because that's what pulls us away from the breath all the time. Now, as those start to diminish, of course, your samadhi gets stronger. And if those are weak, then they have an inverse relationship. So as samadhi gets stronger, the, the hindrances get weaker. And if the hindrances start to become very weak, then you know that for that to happen, the samadhi is quite strong. It's getting strong. Another uh, 
indicator, just a practical one, is that when you sometimes, if you're in a sitting, and perhaps those who've been practicing longer already know this, and the mind just quite naturally feels very concentrated. It's as if it's suddenly even given a gift of energy. And you're able to be with just about everything that comes up, and it's effortless. You know, you hear a sound, and then there's some rumbling in the body, and there are thoughts, and it's all picked up. The mindfulness is right there in this field of moving objects, and you're not straining. Well, that suggests that the mind is really calm enough to do that kind of work, and at which point you might want to just investigate and perhaps see impermanence or whatever you like. Another kind of physical clue is sometimes when you feel the breath and it feels as if it's coming in and going out in such a free way, it feels as if your nostrils have been, uh, something's been taken out of them, that it's just sort of the, the coming out of the breath feels, it's a very beautiful feeling and it's also very free. The air leaves the, freely and it enters freely. And usually they're all three are going together. When the mind is like that, the attention's strong and you're naturally seeing objects arise and pass away without much effort or any effort. And also the hindrances are not working very strongly. But those are some things to look at. I would say for most of you, and certainly those who are beginning, do a lot of work on samadhi. You won't be disappointed. It's really helpful. And as you can see, there's ample opportunity to work on insight. And now finally, Where's that? There have been more than one finally? I can't keep track of how many finalies there have been. And this is an important point. Uh, the ancients said that, one ancient text puts it that Samadhi cuts the grass, but Vipassana pulls the grass out by the roots. So that the Samadhi practice by itself can weaken or even send into abeyance a lot of destructive tendencies, giving us a respite, which is not a small thing, giving us time free away from these uh, destructive uh, mind moments. But it doesn't uproot them. It's only insight, seeing into their impermanent nature, seeing into their uh, uh, lack of self, seeing how they are suffering, really seeing that at increasing levels of depth, which need samadhi in back of it for that level of depth depth to happen, and that's what uproots the grass. So both practices are needed. They, they work with each other. And uh, another reason why independent, independent counsel is needed or guidance is needed, some people are much more cut out for the samadhi practice and flower, and then from that move into insight. And there are other kinds of temperament or character that really are very powerfully drawn to insight work and have a hard time with samadhi. And so the inside actually leads to calm as well. As you start un- undoing and untying some of these knots, the mind becomes more calm and it can then change. You may then be drawn to samadhi practice at a certain point. So it's not a mechanical kind of thing. It's really artful and requires individual treatment. And in a group of this size and it being so heterogeneous, uh, it's not possible to do that. And so we haven't attempted to. Okay, I wish you all well uh, when you go home. I hope you all find some time to do the sitting practice each day. Establish a regular sitting practice and try to stay as alert as possible in the rest of your life and to learn from all the things that come your way.
we have a moment of silence? You to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. We hit the bell three times for the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Anyway, thank you for working so hard, especially those of you who are really new. I do have an idea of what you have to go through. I mean, it's not like I skipped that step. And uh, it's not easy. And a successful retreat means you didn't leave. So <laughs> if we had some badges, we'd give them to you. But we, you know, being so humble and plain, we free of those external kinds of things. Just go home with an inner badge. Okay. Uh, a few of you have asked, those who live in the Boston area or near the Boston area, um, what is going on. We, we have a center called the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. and It's on Broadway, 331 Broadway in Cambridge. And if any of you are within range, and uh, uh, call up and ask to be put on the mailing list or come by. and um, We do essentially these things. We have retreats and classes and it's a place to come and practice. There's a, a good library and uh, we work closely. It's sort of a family feeling between CIMC and IMS. There's a lot of traffic back and forth. So you're all welcome to come. Uh, under torture. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.